Hey, y'all, and welcome, dear listeners. I'm already back in the hosting saddle again. My name is Daniel, and you can follow me on Twitter at D underscore twit, and you can track down and corral all episodes, past, present, and future, on Twitter and Facebook at Pooligans Before we welcome our very special guest today, allow me to offer a few thoughts about fandom. If you're listening to this and don't happen to be one of my family members, then you're more than likely here because of an interest all of us share. The Press Pool, hosted by Julie Mason, weekdays on SiriusXM Channel 124, the POTUS channel. You've probably heard the term hashtag pooligan bandied about, both on Twitter, on this podcast, and occasionally also on the Press Pool. Pooligans was a term I happened to come up with one day. I thought it was a passably clever play on the word hooligan, and it would designate a certain, shall we say, highly enthusiastic press pool fan. After a few episodes, it also became the title of this podcast. Many of you know other pooligans, particularly on Twitter, where they roam freely and feel inclined to self-identify as such. The past two weeks have been both challenging and elating for the pooligans community. Challenging because... What began as virtual friendships between a small group of listeners has long since blossomed into daily conversations, honest exchanges, and many real-life encounters, and during the past two weeks, without going into any details, a few of our pooligans were tested. Their relationships, their jobs, their health, their safety. But whatever happened, pooligans would rally and try as best as we all could to support our friends in need. I know it might sound a little overdramatic, but stuff was going down, and friends were there for each other. Life will throw you curveballs sounds like a rote truism, but as you will hear our multi-talented and extremely insightful guests share as well, you never know what a seemingly normal day can bring. Support is of paramount importance. Can't let the negativity win out, and ultimately, it's back to the game. This weekend, a multitude of pooligans are traveling to and meeting in Washington, D.C., a source of major FOMO for myself, who unfortunately can't make it, but an even greater source of joy. Allow me to wish all of you guys the very best time throwing axes, emptying a few glasses, doing some trivia, emptying some more glasses, and telling many excellent tales. And speaking of excellent tales, our guest tonight, herself both a guest and a fan of the POTUS Press Pool, has many great tales to share, and I've kept you all long enough, so let's venture forth and meet our guest on the other side of this bumper. Abby. Hi, Abby. It's Daniel. Hey, how does how do I sound? You sound great. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I'm delighted that you accepted so quickly. <laughs> well, I have to do things immediately, or I never get them done. So, <laughs> and I'm excited. Oh, thank you. So I have a, a, a tiny little intro. Sounds great. Okay, excellent. We are back with our esteemed guest. You know her from her numerous appearances on the POTUS Press Pool, where she gives us listeners the hashtag real talk about D.C. politics and especially her home state of Texas. She is the Washington Bureau Chief of the Texas Tribune, a three-times press softball team MVP, and we'll talk to her about that for sure. And you must, of course, follow her at Texas Trib. Abby, on Twitter, she is Abby Livingston. Abby, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making time for us. So before we get into all of your juicy expertise about politics and the the crazy moment in time in politics that we currently find ourselves in, it's been a goal of this podcast to give listeners sort of an insight about how and why journalists choose their profession. Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed, even as a second grader, reading biographies and watching the news with my parents. And I 
particularly love politics. And um, I was the editor of my high school yearbook. And uh, I really enjoyed it, but I felt like I would actually rather be a screenwriter. And so that's what I studied in college. And um, so I did, I, I, you know, I, I was headed in that way and I was headed toward Los Angeles. And then there was around that time was the Iraq war and the press corps really didn't do that great of a job on that. And mm -hmm. I became very curious and I'd always been a huge fan of um, Tim Russert and Maureen Dowd. And I just decided maybe I should just go visit Washington before I make a big change. And I fell in love with it. And so I basically started my journalism career sorting newspapers at NBC News for Tim Russert. And it was about the most exciting thing I could have been doing at 23, 24 years old. So that was sort of, it was, it took me a little bit longer to get there than uh, most people. A lot of people go to college and know they want to be a journalist. And I didn't realize it until after college. And so how did the newspaper sorting, how did that eventually bring you all the way to being the Washington bureau chief of the Texas trip? That must have been quite a journey, no? Well, I think it's really important for anyone who's starting out in journalism. Um, the motto for the entry level jobs at NBC was once you prove you can do the little things, then you get to do the big things. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I would there'd be stacks of newspapers and I would sort them to make sure each correspondent got the correct ones that they subscribed to. And that sounds kind of dumb and menial, but it's six o'clock in the morning. I needed to be alert and I needed to do the job well. And, um, you know, you, you move up the ladder and especially network television and you need to be alert and you need to do, be able to do things that look really easy, um, without even thinking. And so, um, I eventually became Chuck Todd's assistant at NBC and, uh, I went on to CNN and then I realized I, my heart was in print. And so I sort of restarted my career at roll call, uh, covering us house and Senate races. And, um, uh, and at the end of the 2014 election, the tribune reached out to me and, I have Texas roots and uh, I understand Washington and I'm the first person to hold my job. So they kind of needed someone who got both worlds and didn't need a lot of handholding. And so uh, it, it was a pretty long journey, but it's been a very fun one too. When you say you have Texas roots, I think you're sort of underselling how deep those roots <laughs> actually are. Can you tell us a little bit about your Texas roots? Yes. Uh, I, I am a descendant of a man named Aaron Burleson and um, he was the underachiever in the family. His brother was <laughs> Edward Burleson and Edward was vice president of the country of Texas. I believe he was the second one. Um, but Aaron Burleson was a soldier in Sam Houston's army, uh, during the Texas revolution from Mexico. And, uh, so I'm seventh generation on my father's side and, uh, Aaron Burleson was at the battle of San Jacinto. And, uh, if, if everything is documented correctly, he was the Texan who captured, uh, the Mexican president slash general Santa Ana after the battle. So, um, it's, uh, we're, we're very proud of our family history, um, <laughs> But I also have relatives who are newly arrived to the state, and I always want to remind people it's a welcoming place. You don't have to go back 150 years to, to be a true Texan. What do you think people generally misunderstand about Texas? I actually, Texas was the first, I, I grew up in Switzerland. Texas was the first place in America that I ever visited because we had friends who had a ranch outside of San Antonio, and I was absolutely mesmerized, completely different from the way that I grew up. Um, and so I, I, at that moment, assumed that all of America was pretty much exactly like their ranch in Texas. Like, it just all looked that way. Later in my life, I came to know that that's obviously not the case. Yeah, well, and I, I love that part of Texas, too. 
I think the biggest thing people don't understand is how big it is. And I, that's something mm-hmm. I've even had to reconcile in my job. So for instance, El Paso is closer to San Diego than it is to the Louisiana border. There are regions of Texas that I've never been to and I grew up there. Um, and I'll specifically sometimes plan my travel to go see new places, but it's got mountains, ocean, huge cities, small towns, desert. And I think that's really a, an, an asset to Beto O'Rourke as he campaigns because he can speak fluently on a huge swath of policies because he had to encounter it during his 254 county, county swing through the state. So he's had to talk about agriculture fluently and that I've seen him uh, do that in Iowa. So he can sort of transpose things that he's learned on the trail in Texas and other areas. And I think that's, and also we all, most of us do not ride horses or own horses. I've ridden a horse a few times, but I've never owned one. <laughs> Deep inhale of shock. Yeah, but I do have a cowboy hat, so. Yeah, so that makes up for it, really. Um, yes. A hat and some boots and everybody's set. Since you mentioned Beto, let's talk about that for a second, because what you, okay. I, I'm actually interested in what you just said about him being able to speak fluently. Some of the beat lately has been that, you know, he had that documentary by, Pod Save, by the Pod Save America guys. Uh, Annie Leibovitz and Vandy Fair were very fawning. But then came sort of a backlash of, but yes, but when you hear him speak, he can't really speak to a lot of issues with sort of a, a, a profound well of knowledge. He finds ways basically to not exactly deflect, but to, to bring this, the, the discussion back to something that he is comfortable talking about. Um, is that something that you've observed? Do you think that's a fair assessment or is he actually more knowledgeable than people give him credit for? I think he's more knowledgeable than people give him credit for. And I think there's two things going on. One, I remember, um, so the, the day after the Vanity Fair thing, ha- I don't think the Vanity Fair article was terribly helpful to him. There was nothing mm-hmm. I took from that article that helped me understand how he's going to handle his moment if he has to do what President Obama did and kill Osama bin Laden. Like that article mm-hmm. felt more like a concert preview. But then the next morning, he's in Iowa, and maybe it was two mornings later, he's in Iowa, and a woman threw at him, I can't even remember what it was, but a very obscure government acronym, and I think it was about unemployment or something like that, and he knew exactly what she was talking about, and it kind of surprised me. Um, And so I think the criticism is often, and I, I, I have seen it in my own work, he can talk a lot about an issue, but he doesn't necessarily talk about it in a black and white way where we can walk away and have a really clear sense of what he's going to do as president on that issue. Um, Additionally, I just, I, one of the things that sort of annoys me about the coverage of him, people say he's inexperienced and it's often reporters. And my, my counter to that is, and part of it is, is that I love the U S house more than most reporters. People tend to look at the Senate in a much higher status. Mm-hmm. Beto O'Rourke served six years in the U.S. House. He sat in hearings. He was a part of the political process. And a lot of reporters don't realize, oh, just because you didn't hear of him about him until two years ago doesn't mean he didn't exist more than two years ago. So he was sort of quietly doing his thing in the U.S. House. Um, but I, and, and on top of that, he served in Congress longer than Ted Cruz, Barack Obama, and Kamala Harris did before they announced their runs. They were just all in the Senate, and we tend to look at the Senate with a higher regard, if that makes sense. Do you think he has what it takes in order to accelerate the, the you know, almost by now mythical purpling of Texas and can get the hue to blue? Or is that still not going to be happening in the 2020 cycle? 
Well, I think it it is something that is discussed every time I encounter a Democrat, mm-hmm. and a, particularly Democrats who have the power to spend a lot of money. Um, what I will say is I think if he's on the ticket, we are looking at a different ballgame than if it's a non-Beto O'Rourke ticket. Um, it's going to be an interesting situation because Texas is so expensive. It will cost hundreds of millions of dollars to compete in Texas. And so does the Democratic Party want to do that, uh, or do they see it probably is a better bet to spend $100 million on smaller states and where it's not all or nothing. Um, but what I do think could happen in Texas is uh, he could lift some votes and maybe possibly another Democratic candidate too, and there could be some party building when when and if more U.S. Uh, members of Congress are elected from the Democratic Party. So if they increase their delegation size, that makes the party stronger. So I'm I'm not quite anticipating 2020 to be the new Ohio in Texas, but maybe 2024. So, so within grasp, has the has the DNC learned any lesson? Do you think from what happened in the midterms, where they were extremely excited? Obviously, they missed what they were shooting for in Texas to some degree. There was great voter attention. It was an unprecedented success, and even though it was a loss, an unprecedented success for the Democrats. But have they been? able to to address the issue of Latino voters still not really coming out in the numbers, I think, that they hoped for to vote for their candidate. That was a major problem for Congressman O'Rourke, and he would probably be a U.S. senator right now had there been a stronger Latino vote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is a huge concern. Um, it, it is it is just a very difficult situation because many Latinos come from countries where voting uh, if you show up to vote, you, I mean, there's dictatorships and things like that. So it's culturally a much more difficult uh, a way for them to come to the polls or feeling comfortable about that. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. I think if and when the Latino vote comes out, I think it's going to be a very, very big deal. But what happened also in 2018 was, um, and this I give a lot of credit to Beto O'Rourke, a lot of urban white and suburban white women went democratic and this was not something they were doing over the last 20 30 years and so um the 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 key i think to understand texas politics right now and it may change but it is now fully a city versus rural divide the cities are going very strongly for the democratic party which is how it is mostly nationally but it has not been that way in texas and the rural areas are going very strongly republican do you think that will hold? Because I one thing that I heard now a few times is the worry that the Democrats will take the 2018 results, which were outstanding for them, for granted, in a sense. So in a state like Texas, where they really had, where there was this shift and women obviously came out for the Democrats in numbers that, that were far beyond what, what they maybe expected or could have hoped for, do you think that will hold? Was that a permanent shift? Is that something that they can count on? Or is that something that the Democrats still have to work for with their with their candidate and also on the ground? I think it's going to be I, I, this is what happened in Texas and a lot of places. It's not it has not been cool, socially acceptable to be a Democrat. And a lot of people put signs out in their yard and said, you know what, I'm voting for Beto O'Rourke. And that was a soci- sociological change. And I don't think that snaps back. What I do think Democrats need to be worried about is whether or not the enthusiasm levels in 2020 are what they were in 2018. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm agnostic on that. But we did see earlier this week a Wisconsin uh, statewide judicial race that I believe 
landed in favor of uh, Republicans. If not, it was super close. And, you know, I think most people thought Wisconsin was going back into the Democratic column, and it appears it's not. So there is, I just feel maybe an instinctive sense that maybe enthusiasm nationwide isn't quite where it was at this point in 2018. And I think that's what they need to worry about in Texas. But uh, I don't think it'll ever go back to as conservative as it was in 2014, 2010. So but then again, it may, and I'll look, I'll look really dumb after the fact. <laughs> I have, if I've learned anything from listening to you for now quite a while, it's that you'll definitely never look dumb, no matter what. So I, whatever <laughs> well, you say, you. I will, I will believe in it. Um, what, what is the deal with John Cornyn? The Democrats appear to be already wanting to get on the way. They ha don't even really have their candidate yet, but they would like to get on the way and get on the let's unseat John Cornyn train. Do you think that is at all feasible or is was actually Ted Cruz a much softer target than than Cornyn is? Well, I think it, 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 so. these are two completely different Senate races. So two years ago, you had a very charismatic Democrat mm -hmm. and you had a very polarizing Republican. Um, both sides got their base extremely excited. What is that issue in 2018? 20 is John Cornyn is not the most exciting person in the world, which you think, oh my gosh, that's a bad thing for him. But it also kind of is good for him because it means he's not exciting Democrats the way Ted Cruz excited Democrats. Um, I think much remains on who the Democrats end up nominating, what that primary looks like. If there's a primary, do candidates beat each other up? Do they push each other to, too far to the left? Or does a primary help motivate that candidate to get around the state and work harder and build up his his or her infrastructure um, early on. I, I think there's a lot of unknowns. What I can tell you is it's getting interest in Washington in a way that a Texas Senate race hasn't ever before, even two years ago when O'Rourke launched and most people didn't know who he was. I think Cornyn's taking this race very seriously. Uh, I, I think that there, the fact that there is jostling on the Democratic side between Joaquin Castro, a congressman from San Antonio, and maybe a woman named MJ Hager, who mm -hmm. ran a very robust but unsuccessful campaign in Central Texas, that all of this is happening is is indicative that this is a competitive seat, but it's also a very expensive one. And if you're Charles Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, and you've got all this money that you've got to divide up, Texas is always a really hard commitment, just like in the presidential. It's hundreds of millions of dollars that you would need to send that way. And uh, that is going to be what keeps Texas from being competitive statewide for a long time. It's just a sheer cost. Like you mentioned earlier, O'Rourke is getting some, I don't know, lukewarm reception, I guess, from, mm -hmm. from some of the writers, uh, from some of the political writers, whereas Mr. Buttigieg appears to have his moment in the sun. Has he come by Texas? Is Texas at all in his in his crosshairs? And how do you think he will play down in Texas? He, I don't know if he's been since he's launched. I should know that. But he's been through before. Um, the thing about him, I do think he's a very compelling candidate. But I think if we go back and look at past primaries, uh, whether it's the Republicans in 2016, maybe less so there, but Republicans in 2012, there was this boom and bust cycle. And if I was Mayor Pete, I'd be a little worried. Maybe I'm booming a little too early. Um, and that's not to say that in, a, in, a, in any sort of defense of Beto O'Rourke's decision. I just think we're going to see several candidates over the course of the next year have really, really good weeks. And then it just sort of peters out. And it's like, what are you left standing with? Um, because all that matters is where your momentum is just before the Iowa caucuses. And that is the key driver of how this primary will go 
How does President Trump play at the moment in Texas? Is that that sharp rural urban divide or does he still hold sway? I think he moved that. He is the more than Beto O'Rourke. Donald Trump is what has driven that divide. Uh, mm. I, Trump is deeply popular in the rural outreaches of the state. Uh, so many people think that this is the best thing that's happened in a long time for America. But on the flip side, th there are women who voted for George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Bob Dole, who are looking at this and going, this is not the Republican Party I want to be a part of. And that's, I think, what Democrats have to think about. Uh, how how far to the left do they want to go? Because they have people that they might be able to lure over. Um, but Trump's popularity ratings are not terribly high in the state of Texas. And uh, he went down and campaigned in Houston um, right before the midterms. And Houston was an absolute Republican bloodbath on Election Day. I, I'm not sure there's any evidence he did much to help uh, any of the candidates in Harris County. So it's uh, it, it, I, I'm not sure he is a positive for Republicans at this point in the state of Texas. Is there any indication why he is so popular in the rural areas? Because has he what has he delivered for for that rural uh, population that they see as one of the greatest things that has ever happened to them? Is it mostly social or is there actually hard economic evidence that to them indicates that this is a boon to them? I think it's the courts, and I think it's the fact he's gotten two justices through. I, I, it is really hard to underscore enough how much of an issue abortion is in some of these areas. Mm -hmm. That is the drive. That is the reason some people vote for the Republican Party. There is anxiety in the state, though, over trade issues. I know some folks are not terribly happy with the new farm bill, uh, and so. But I think at the end of the day, it's the Supreme Court justices that uh, reassure these people that Donald Trump is their their guy for president. Let's quickly talk about the Texas Tribune, because I'm, okay. I'm fascinated. I've had a few conversations lately about news deserts, uh, which, which has been pretty corrosive to, to a lot of, you know, a lot of smaller communities that really need that local reporting, but don't have it anymore. The, the Texas okay. Tribune is a nonprofit newspaper. Tell us a little bit about the Texas Tribune and how it sustains its model. Yeah, so our uh, CEO is a guy named Evan Smith, and he was a very prominent editor of a magazine called Texas Monthly. He was sort of a celebrity in Austin when I was going to school down there. And he quit the Texas Monthly, and he created this Tribune. And it's a concept that was new and different. And uh, so basically, it's uh, a nonprofit news organization. We, You can read one of our stories, and just like when you watch PBS and they say, this program was brought to you by viewers like you, um, you can donate to the Texas Tribune and help, help support our stories. Um, additionally, we have uh, corporate donations. We have advertising. We do major events where we interview people. Um, we have a huge festival at the end of September, usually in Austin. And um, so there's a lot of different streams of income, but it has allowed us, I believe we are the largest capital state capital newsroom in the country now. And so it, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to go all over the state and cover different issues. Um, and it's, it seems to have worked. And one of my favorite things about Evan is when a journalist from another state is thinking about creating something similar, Evan is the first person to help them and give them advice. Uh, I know he has a close relationship with John Ralston in Nevada. And mm -hmm. so it's, uh, I, I hope that this is the solution. I just worry not every state has the sort of resources that Texas has to be able to sustain it. And so that's that's my my concern. But if we could have, we would not be aligned, but 
a version of the Texas Tribune in every state, or that would be amazing. Um, if, if, if there are, uh, this is a situation where copying is, being a copycat is highly flattering to us. Last year, I went to TripFest simply because Julie Mason was hosting a panel yes. uh, with, with our friends from the Washington Post, and I really just wanted to see it. It all sounded so interesting. Tell us a little bit about TripFest. Tell us a little bit about what that is and how that works. So it's an annual sort of, it's the South by Southwest of politics, basically. And so it's an annual event we put on in downtown Austin. And basically every venue you can find with a stage, we have journalists in town interviewing politicians or other journalists and talking about the current state of politics. And so we consider Julie an honorary Texan. So we love having her. <laughs> and she always adds a little bit of spice to our uh, Trib Fest. And so it's Texas Tribune Fest. And so um, you do have to buy tickets to go. And um, I'm sure we've got a, something, a portal online to do that now, if not now in a few months. But mm -hmm. um, we're already trying to work on people getting them to the, the conference. And so it's a highlight of our year. I went, like I said, last year, I was, I didn't really know what to expect beyond seeing that panel. And it was so well organized, smooth, people in line. I've ha I had so many really pleasant, amazing conversations just while waiting to get into one of the venues. Oh, that's great. And I watched you interview Amy Klobuchar. It actually gathered a huge crowd. That was not in a venue, actually. It was in, in one of the tents, correct? Yes. And it was, I, I have to say, it, it was not based on my own star power. Uh, the senator had just, um, and I'm being facetious there. Uh, <laughs> this, What else could it have been based on, please? Yeah. Um, well, the senator had literally the day before Tribfest was the hottest moments of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and she her questioning was Senator center stage. So um, just by the luck of the draw or the gods aligning, I got the first interview with Senator Klobuchar about that. And so it was uh, very electric and she um, was she was willing to play ball and we talked about it. And uh, it was it was I've never been quite that lucky on timing before. And so we felt very blessed. We, there was a chance she might not have even made it, but she, she pushed through and kept her commitment. And we're very grateful for that. It was really an incredible weekend. Everything was electric because of those hearings going on. Beto O'Rourke had something like 50,000 people that showed up, I think, for, for his event. Uh, he had a concert with Willie Nelson, but we right. did not go uh, as reporters. Uh, so I did not see it, but it would not shock me if that was how many who came. Yeah, no, it was it was, it was was really impressive. But that, that interview, I remember she talked about her father and about that relationship that had come up during that hearing. And that was really touching. Yes, yeah, so she's been very public about the fact that her father um, has alcoholism. And I, I believe now he's in recovery and has mm -hmm. been for a very long time. But that came up in the uh, and she she'd set up her question with Kavanaugh with that context. And I think it was a way to show empathy or sympathy. And it devolved very quickly from there and ended with him asking her if she'd ever been blacked out drunk. And it was um, but he he did follow up and apologize for that lack of decorum. So um, it, it was quite something politically. It definitely was. Do you think she has a chance in the in 2020 race? I think it all depends on Iowa. And so hmm. she's from a neighboring state of Minnesota. And my understanding is there are crowds turning out. Um, she's working the state really, really hard. Um, she does not have a good showing. I think that's probably going to be the end of her campaign. Um, but I think the, the central mystery is how do you break through? Even I was caught off guard, just the level of news coverage of Congressman O'Rourke's launch. I mean, we have to cover it because we're Texas, 
but the sheer volume of MSNBC coverage and all of that, and I think there are other candidates looking at this going, how in the world do I get this kind of attention? And I think this will all come to a head in June when we have the debates. And so she, um, she's proven to be very good at questioning and hearings. And I think the question is, is how does she perform in a debate and how does everyone else, and do they even qualify? Uh, and, and it's going to be a very interesting uh, couple of nights, I think. As you mentioned, too, that weekend seemed really electric. There seemed to be a lot of things going on at the same time. Better work still was a, a huge story, despite the Kavanaugh situation going on. Do you feel that some of that electricity that was in the air back then was usurped by the by, by the results of the Mueller probe and that perhaps the Democrats have lost a little bit of their energy? I think it's more about that the Democrats had a successful midterm. And mm. when you are successful, you tend to not be as energized. I mean, what we were seeing over all of 2017 and 2018, and we saw this in 2010 with the Republicans, when you are out of power, you're charging hard and it is an existential threat to everything you believe in and every moment when you wake up you're if you're one of those activists you're going to move your cause forward and i think sometimes when you're in power it's a little less uh the urgency isn't quite there so i think that's more of a thing i i this molar thing i i i'm just trying to be very careful in what i say about it because i simply don't know what is in it and if we will ever see it and i i just don't know and it's going to be um uh, I think it has sort of knocked Democrats over and they're trying to find their way. But I just, the way the news cycle, we, we have had so many crazy and cataclysmic and insane things happen over the last three years that I just wonder if this will even be on the radar six months from now or 18 months from now. We both come from a, from a screenwriting background to some degree, you and I. You know that if 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 you ever pitched this as a screenplay to anybody the past three years, they would literally laugh you out of the room within probably halfway through the second act. They would tell you, thank you, bye-bye. Because it's way too much. It's just way too much. How has that been as a journalist over the past three years? How do you deal with the avalanches literally coming from every possible angle? Well, I think it's, for me... I, I early on in the administration, I would kind of get caught up in whatever the national frenzy was. And mm -hmm. it finally dawned on me. That's not my job. My job is to write stories that affect Texans. So there may be a lot of crazy stuff going on with the Russia investigation. But if it if the farm bill is happening at the same time, I care about the farm bill because I have a bunch of farmers in Texas and I have people who live on SNAP, which is part of the farm bill. And so I've learned to. um just try to think about what matters to my readers. And that may not be what matters to the person I'm working next to at the Capitol. Um, additionally, I think it's, um, I mean, sort of a secret of our trade is when we know something's going to happen, we usually write the story ahead of time. And then when it happens, we'll add a few more new details and then publish. It's called a pre-write. I don't really do those anymore. I, I early about this time. Yeah. Lesson learned the hard way. About I remember about two years ago, I wrote this really in-depth story about the budget. And I went and interviewed one of our members who's on the budget committee before a recess. And I needed a couple of things to move before we can publish. But I was like, I'm going to get a week ahead of my work and just get this out of the way. And within about 36 hours, my entire story fell apart because all of what I thought was going to happen didn't. And the president put out a tweet that just completely blew up everyone's expectations. And so it's sort of a strange thing, but I kind of just show up and 
you know, you try to be prepared in a, like, being aware of the world, but I don't try to over-prepare. I just kind of wait and see what happens and then write it as quickly as I can, rather than trying to predict, which is basically how all of journalism's ever worked, as you, uh, if you have a really good sense that a bill is going to be rolled out the next day and you get a sense of what it is, you, you write it ahead of time. And now it's just like, well, will it roll out? I don't know that. And I may be wasting my time doing this. So um, that's probably the secret of the trade that's the most. But I think, I think um, the best thing a reporter can do in this era is just stay calm and focused and um, figure out what is the noise and tune it out when you can. It's almost like script writing versus daily improv at this point. That's probably a pretty good comparison. But I mean, I will say that it's, um, you know, I, I, I play on a softball team and we practice before work. And I literally at 7.45 one morning, our coach said practice is over and we didn't know what was going on. And somebody yelled, Steve Scalise has been shot. Mm-hmm. And half of us went over to the men's baseball field and I'm standing outside of a crime scene involving a U.S. congressman. And I'm wearing baseball cleats. And it was just kind of this surreal moment of like, how did I get here? And it's, it's, uh, I, nothing shocks me anymore. I was going to softly tread my way toward that <laughs> moment. But what was that day like? How did you find out what was going on? And what was going through your head as you were standing there in your baseball cleats, having gotten those news? Well, I was pitching and um, one of my uh, uh, teammates wouldn't come up to the plate. She kept staring at her phone and I was getting very annoyed because I hadn't batted yet. And I wanted to bat and she wasn't hustling. And Finally, she set her phone down and she started hitting. And then, as I said, uh, our coach, Carl Hulse at the New York Times, shouted out. And when I first heard the story, I had very, very, very bad mental images of what could have um, of the scene there in my mind. It was not anywhere near that bad. And I thank God for that. Um, So uh, I went down there with a couple of my teammates and we just, I sort of checked out the scene. I did some interviews with our local affiliates in the state. Um, and there wasn't a lot of reporting I could do. I mean, I was trying to figure out, cause I knew the four Texans who play baseball and figuring out their health. Um, one of them, Roger Williams is their coach and he severely injured his ankle diving into the dugout. Um, another one, Joe Barton, his son was on the scene. And so several of the men there jumped on top of his son. Um, and this is a detail that really didn't get out. And I, I, it was the most chilling thing I heard all day, but, uh, Congressman Kevin Brady called me from the, he left practice a little early that day because he was chairman of ways and means and tax reform was going on then. And he was really busy and he he's roommates with Steve Scalise. And so Steve Scalise's family was not in Washington. So Kevin Brady was the one sitting next to him in the hospital and not knowing if his friend was going to live or die. And at one point he called me for an interview and he had this really terrifying comment, which is, and I've been to the baseball practice before as a reporter, um, and where the shooter was, was on the third baseline. And there was, I believe I'm getting it right. I think it was the third baseline. Um, and there was, that is where the, um, uh, the, the pitchers warm up. There were these cages where they throw. And they gave the pitchers that morning off because they needed to rest their arms before the game the next night. So all the pitchers were told to sleep in. Well, if those pitchers had been there, they would have been right next to the shooter and they would have been trapped. And it's just, there were a number of miracles for that. This was not worse than it was. And um, you know, it's, I have to say people in Washington live very differently. Now, if you are even remotely known on Twitter or anywhere, 
um, you take those things very seriously and being in open spaces and things like that. And it's uh, just, it was a horrifying day. Um, and uh, I hope we never have another one like that. What a terrifying experience. Everybody went back to, to playing eventually. Yeah. And th the game goes on. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good thing about it. And I, yeah. I one of the things that has annoyed me, um, and I see it in the Twitter feeds of members of Congress when they're trying to promote the game, and sometimes they trash talk us, and it's more a means to just get attention for the game. These are for charities. This is um, this is something that uh, all of these people are willing to get up, and I'm one of them at 5:30 in the morning to go practice. You're not neglecting your work if you're throwing a baseball around at 7:15 a.m. And there's just this, I think it's so easy to be outraged about everything, but there was this, how dare you play baseball while you're a member of Congress? Don't you have more important things to do? Mm. And I think that is a real um, un misunderstanding of human nature and networking. And I think when you, you are as only as effective of, as a member of Congress in your relationships with other people. And I think it's really good that these members go out and play ball together and get to know each other. Even the men play um, Republican versus Democrat and the women play uh, reporters versus members. And so, but I think it's a good way to move your bills through, get things done um, by creating those. And I, I, the cynicism sometimes of the public is just, um, it's a really sad thing to me. It's also important, no, because a lot of those, there are not a lot of those experiences left. A lot of those times where members from both sides get together and do something together that does not involve screaming or butting heads or doing a hit somewhere, a, a takedown of the other party. It, it should really be regarded as a positive rather than the negative, ideally speaking. Correct. Like members used to live here. I mean, before the plane, they would live here months on end. And uh, so, and even as recently as 30 years ago, they would run into each other at soccer practice, picking up their kids because they are humans and they have lives and things like that. <laughs> um, and so it was a, the, one of the, the changes in partisanship has been attributed to members flying home every weekend. Well, I think constituents like the idea of being able to see their member of Congress you know, at the various events and things at the same time, they're not, you know, going to the grocery store and running into their, you know, colleague from Mississippi or wherever um, on Sunday either. So um, it has it really helped to isolate members. I think there's some of a somewhere there's got to be a happy medium. But I think baseball and softball are truly the last bastion of that. And uh, what I really appreciate is that shooter was not able to take that away from us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How did you get into that bastion? How did you become the three-time MVP of your of uh, of that particular game? How did you get into softball, and and what has made you so effective for your team? Oh well, uh, I <laughs> I I had a friend in Caroline in second grade who played, and I did what she did, so I started <laughs> playing. And uh, my um, father is a huge baseball fan. And so he didn't have any sons and he never thought he'd get to coach. And then suddenly this opportunity came when I was eight and he got involved and he ended up being my coach for my last few years of little league. And so, um, that it was just my favorite thing to do as a child. Um, and, uh, I love everything about the game. I love, um, hitting, I love going to batting cages. Um, and I work really hard at it. I, I don't want to strike out on my uh, one or two bats each year. And so um, I think it's, but what's really fascinating is um, 
and I think we're going to struggle with this in a good way, but with so many new younger members, um, we're really coming up to a point where there aren't many women left in Congress who are pre-Title IX. Most have had an opportunity to play some kind of sport. And so it makes them tougher to play against, but it's also just a realization of just how important that law was uh, to women. And, uh, and this is one of the very weird offshoots of it. What? Sorry, I'm actually not familiar with that law. What are we? What are we talking about? Uh, Title IX is a law. I, I think it was passed in the early '70s, but it was a law basically saying that educational facilities need to spend equal amounts on boys and girls athletics. Uh-huh. It's created some problems in the um, implementation. Sometimes there's a wrestling program at a school that gets cut because there's no counterpart for the girls or something mm-hmm. along those lines. But it was generally what opened up um, most women would either cheerlead or play tennis. And um, my mother never had an opportunity to play softball. Lynn Sweet on our softball team from Chicago, uh, one of the reasons she plays is because she was never given a shot, whether it was socially or in school to play softball. And, you know, and and now she gets to. And so um, it's a law that I think, um, I just am a big believer that sports teaches young people confidence and uh, as a reporter, you've got to work through endurance. You can be tired and you'd rather go to bed. And I think about being 14 years old and doing gut runs and basketball practice and like whatever I'm doing is easier than that. And so I think when you go through that, I think it's great that girls have had the opportunity to do all of those things as well. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it sounds like you were one of those kids who was lucky to have a dad who wanted to coach, but coached in a good way, did not did not use that as his out because I, I have a I have a daughter who played soccer for a while and she had a soccer coach who was one of the other dads and I think he was mostly just disappointed that he had never gotten to I don't know coach Real Madrid oh, and that was no. uh, that was his approach to coaching it sounds like your dad had a much better approach to that particular issue this was fully driven by my interest and um his only rules were that I always had to play with um, well I always had to play with sportsmanship and he always taught me it's important how you carry yourself uh, on the golf course or in a softball situation or any other sport is what people are going to draw from your character. And so um, I think that's one thing. So you better not cheat or be throw sand in somebody's face. Uh, and those are the only times he ever got really mad were things like that. And he also made sure I had bubble gum and sunflower seeds. And when I was a senior in high school and I said, you know, I think I'm going to wrap up softball and I'm going to focus on yearbook. He said, I'm sorry to hear this, but okay, I'll survive. But he kept going to my team's games. So, yeah. Yes. That's, that's, that's the great kind of, of sports dad with, with understanding and kindness. Yes. That's how, that's exactly how it should work. On the other side of the spectrum of understanding and kindness. Do you have any Louis Gohmert stories? I, I, yes, I do. Um, I wrote a story about him um, I, I try not to always write about every time he says something that gets attention um, because I would not be doing other things. Um, <laughs> would be a lot of writing. Yep. Yes. But I can tell you a very weird um, and sort of heartwarming thing about him. He was on Fox News right after Gabrielle Giffords was shot and he was appearing with a congresswoman named Carolyn Maloney from New York. And this was when it was right before the State of the Union and reporters were asking, members decided they were going to take dates, members from the other side and sit together at this, um, at the next state of the union. And the reporter on television asked both of them who they were sitting with and they hadn't found anyone or hadn't done it yet. And 
The reporter said, why don't y'all sit together? And Congresswoman Maloney is from the Upper East Side. She's extremely pro-choice. She's a feminist. And so they did. And they ended up really liking each other. And they I don't think they still do it, but for years they would sit together. And so I wrote a story about that. And um, funnily, uh, Congresswoman Maloney had the rock and roll singer Carol King at the Capitol this week. Mm. And all of these members of Congress were fanboying and fangirling all over King and Gomert walked by and didn't know what was going on or pay attention. And Maloney yelled, Hey, Louie, come meet Carol King. And he came and Carol King, Carolyn Maloney and Louie Gomert had about five minutes together at the Capitol in a very pleasant conversation. And they were, King was pitching legislation on uh, environmental protection, but they all had a very pleasant, lovely conversation. So I know everyone there's a lot out there about Louis Gomer, but I was that's my freshest story of Louis, and it's actually a nice one. That is a very nice one. I, I also Julie insists that he's a very talented dancer as well. I cannot speak to that. I would be intrigued. He's known around the Capitol for making very good spare ribs and giving very good tours of the Capitol. So that's my uh, my most human intel on him. <laughs> spare ribs. That's also a good. One. Speaking of Julie, how did you? Miss Mason, was that during her time in Texas or where did you meet Julie? No, I met Julie on her show. One of the best things about Julie is sometimes reporters get asked, most of the time reporters get asked to appear on television or on radio shows or whatever. And you're just given a topic on the way there and you've got to be able to talk about it. And it could be the Iran nuclear deal or it could be Robert Mueller. And that's not what Julie does. Julie books you based on what you've done. And she Mm -hmm. basically asks you about the story you've done and wants to know maybe what you couldn't put in because of length and extra details. And that's such a flattering thing as a reporter. And it's fun to be able to talk about something you've spent a lot of time digging up. And so uh, she had me on the show a few times and then she invited me to dinner once and we just became very good friends from then on. And um, it was really funny one time, my father was driving to a funeral and he, I forgot to tell him, and he flipped through the channels and he thought, I'll just listen to Julie's show. And I was on and he laughed and he said, I think you guys have a rapport. And so um, I feel like I'm the Kramer to her Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, my favorite. My, my other favorite part of that story is that you said you forgot to tell your dad. Do you, do, you still, <laughs> yes. do you tell him still every time when you're on? Yeah, Julie really enjoys this because they don't know how to do XM radio in their house, but they have it in their car. So mm-hmm. they will go drive around the neighborhood listening to our show, My both of my parents. It's very sweet. So Julie try, sometimes gives them a shout out. Uh, yeah, I think that that is something that really sets the POTUS prize pool apart, that she lets journalists talk about their actual stories in great detail. Yes. When you said earlier that you fell in love with with Washington, what is it about D.C. that that so captivated you? And and is it still today the place that captivated you when you first made that decision to move there and and take that job? I I remember I came during one of Bush's states of the union and state of the union addresses. And I remember being walking home during the speech and the entire city was empty. Everyone was wherever they needed to be to watch the speech. And I really loved that sense of. (laughs) Um, collectiveness. And uh, it's a city that you are have a pretty good shot of running into someone you know, when you just go run an errand. And it's, I like that feeling. Um, I like that. uh, Instead of baseball games in every bar or basketball, they'll have C-SPAN or CNN. And it's, um, so it's a company town. um, And I think it's a town Uh, I kind of bristle at the term swamp. Some of the worst actors in Washington are the people who come in and leave and come back and forth. Whereas um, 
I think it's a city where um, your reputation matters and people behave accordingly in most circumstances and, and regular business. And so, uh, and, and there's a price to pay if you don't. And I, I really appreciate that. And so it's just an exciting city. It is a city where most people move for idealistic reasons. And maybe sometimes people lose their way, um, but it's, it's, it's a destination for people who really love their country. Mm, so that's, that's a, I think a a more positive outlook than a lot of people would say they have on DC. But usually, those are the people who don't live in DC that have that particular outlook that are very jaded to how and why DC works. Correct, and I, I mean we must remember that part of the reason it doesn't work is it's who the voters in America sent. And so, um, usually, what people are more angry about it's not Washington; it's a member of Congress, and they're angry that that person is there, but they forget they come from a place where they were elected by hundreds of thousands of people. And so um, I find it to be um, there. It's not a perfect city and there's a lot of problems with it. Um, but it is a city where um, at least at the outset, people come trying to make the world a better place. Where, and and hopefully that is that is also the way that they eventually leave. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any Texas particular stories that maybe get lost in the in the DC shuffle and in the White House shuffle that the general audience should know about but doesn't because they just don't break through the way that they should? I mean the story that I've been covering for a really long time has been there are 38 members of our delegation and for a very long time three of them were women. And we had not elected a woman freshman to a full term since 1996. Mm. And we had never elected a Latina. Um, and that, that changed this cycle. We sent, the state of Texas sent three new women, um, one from Houston, two from Houston and one from El Paso. Uh, and so it, it's just a very strange thing because when I was a little girl, my governor was a woman, my senator was a woman, and my mayor was a woman. And there was a lot of that, that sort of stopped in the late nineties and into the two thousands. And um, so I think uh, Texas has been a tough place to run uh, as a woman and it didn't matter which party you were in um, and it's starting to open up again. And that I think is healthy for the delegation because I think that they sometimes get lost in group think. And um, it's just extremely important to have diversity in the delegation. And um, I think it's getting more racially diverse and, uh, gender diverse. And I think that's a great thing. How did that happen in the 90s? Was that just a, the, the patriarchy reasserted itself? Or how, how did that happen in the 90s? So the prominent women in the 90s were Ann Richards, Kay Bailey Hutchison, Kay Granger, Sheila Jackson Lee, and Eddie Bernice Johnson. And they were all elected between 1990 and 96 for their first mm -hmm. race. And um, after that, it just sort of petered out. And I, I think it, there was a bunch of redistricting in 2004, um, and I don't really know what the root of it was, but I started covering primaries and looking for this and, um, it just didn't seem to be a very welcoming place. And there were just also weren't a lot of retirements. And when there are no retirements, there's no opportunity because incumbents usually have such a lock on their seats. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I never really got at the root of what caused it. I think the fact that Kay Bailey Hutchison was such an outsized large figure, it sort of, um, made people not realize how few women there were. I, I think that may be part of it. I think we're we're almost at the one hour. Great. Well, I've enjoyed this. I am not just uh, a guest on Julie Mason's show. I'm also a fan. So um, I appreciate Aww. all of your support. And this is just wonderful. So I'm glad you love her as much as we do. Oh, yes. No, the, the love is extensive.
It's it, it oh, is great. it is definitely extensive. And thank you so much for making time to do this. I know everybody will thank enjoy you. this tremendously. As I said, you follow immediately at Texas Trip Abbey if you're not already doing it, which I'm assuming the vast majority of you are. But if you're not, then you'll do that, please, immediately. Abby, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Have a great one. You too.